Blog Talk Radio. You want to replay the point? Okay. Mr. Vavrinka wants to replay the point. 15 on. Good evening and welcome to Replay the Point. It's September 13th. My name is Jared Pine, joined as always by Pete Zebron. Pete, how are you doing this evening? Doing well, Jared. Uh, we're uh, at an interesting time in tennis. Just wrapped up the U.S. Open, getting ready for the Davis Cup semifinals and uh, the remainder of the Masters 1000s and the World Tour Finals. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start right there with the U.S. Open. Rafael Nadal, champion at the U.S. Open. For the third time in his career, who would have thought uh, that Nadal would have more U.S. Open titles than Djokovic, than Del Potro? Um, I, I could keep going with a list of guys. If Nadal has now won more U.S. Open than, um, what a surprise and kind of a unique way in which he did it. Barely faced any top players, uh, really Del Potro being the only recognizable uh, name to a casual tennis fan, and, and we both know Del Potro wasn't at his best. Um, so a very unique path to the title, but a title nonetheless for Rafael Nadal. Yeah, you, you said it all right there. Rafael Nadal with more U.S. Open titles than Novak Djokovic. Uh, that is beyond an understatement, Jared. And I, I remember a couple of years ago in Cincinnati talking with some some fellow colleagues, and uh, I was saying, you know, Nadal was really lucky he got that one U.S. Open when he did, and, uh, you know, somebody tapped me in the arm and said, uh, hey, he's got two of them, and I'm, I paused for a second, and I thought hard, and a couple people nodded, and it, it was is sort of hard to believe that Rafa had two U.S. Opens at that point in time, sort of like how he has one Cincinnati where the courts are so quick. But, yes, Rafael Nadal, third U.S. Open, all credit to him. He played who was in front of him, um, unlike Del Potro, who had to go through number eight, number three, and number one even to possibly reach the final. Uh, Rafa had a, a much clearer course, but uh, credit to him, uh, despite some hiccups early on, in round two against Daniel, and round three against Leonardo Meyer, he got the job done. Uh, did lose the first set in the semis against Del Potro, who whose tongue was on the ground. Jared Del Potro won just eight points in that second set, and only twelve in the fourth. And uh, Rafa just cruised from there. Yeah, there was some talk on the ESPN broadcast that maybe Del Potro was playing possum. That certainly wasn't the case. Uh, he had been through it all, having to get through. Dominic Team, then Roger Federer. Um, he just had nothing left when it came to Nadal. But let's talk about the other person on the side of the net in the final match, Kevin Anderson, the graduate of Illinois, uh, former college tennis player. So exciting for us who are fans of college tennis to see a guy like him reaching a Grand Slam final. Uh, on the other hand, he just wasn't ready for what was coming down. It was a bad match against Nadal to begin with, and he really hadn't faced much competition like Nadal didn't face really anyone until the final. And so um, just a one-sided battle, but a nice effort for Kevin Anderson to get there. I agree. Um, You know, nice win in the quarters against um, 
Sam Query, who, uh, again, they were a set apiece. A couple of long tiebreakers, Jared, going into the third set, and Anderson got the job done there. And then playing Corrino Busta in the semis, who had won 15 consecutive sets, uh, actually won the first set against Anderson, making that 16 before Kevin corrected course. But absolutely right. Uh, I did have a chance to see Anderson a little bit, uh, Jared, the tail end of his first-round match in Cincinnati, where despite the fact that he hit 24 aces in two sets, uh, Del Gopalov took him out in straight sets, but I agree. I mean, he competed well uh, for the first set, but once once Rafa got that one break, I mean, I think the whole world knew that match was over, including Anderson, including Rafa, everybody in the box, everybody in the stadium, everybody watching, but um, nice for Kevin Anderson, as you mentioned, a collegiate player, to be able to get six wins at the U.S. Open. Yeah, uh, really a great effort. And, you know, when you think about the kind of people that have success against Rafael Nadal, there's not many. Nadal leads the head-to-head against almost every single player. And there's just a few exceptions, guys like Novak Djokovic and Fabio Fanini, who have had success against Nadal. Well, Kevin Anderson has absolutely nothing in common in terms of style of play with Novak Djokovic and uh, Fabio Fanini. So it, it was really, he was up against it the whole way. Um, but credit to Nadal that taking care of business there in that final and straight set. Um, and the the other one of the big four, there was only two in this tournament. <laughs> Nadal wins the title. The other one was Roger Federer, who never really was able to get his, his tournament going, never played well, struggled out of the gate, uh, made his way into the second week, but eventually lost to Juan Martin Del Potro. What did you make of Roger Federer's tournament at the U.S. Open? Well, it all changed for him, Jared, in, in Canada. I was in, actually in Cincinnati in the press box when uh, we were watching the tail end of that final in Canada against Alexander Zverev, and he was, I don't want to say he was mailing it in, he wasn't going to retire, but there was absolutely nothing on his service motion there uh, back into the second set against Zverev where he lost in that final. And as we saw, you know, going five sets against Tiafo in the first round, I mean, that that Granted, Francis Siafo is an up-and-coming player, but that that you know that result right there, we we look at the fact that he had to go five against him, and then Eugenie, somebody who he's beaten a zillion times in a row, down two sets to one once again. If the red light were not on at that point after match one, it certainly was a match two. Corrected course, I actually thought he'd have more difficulty against Luciano Lopez. Took care of him. Took care of Cole Schreiber, who who he owns as well, but. Uh, Dopo, as we've seen historically, has given Roger problems, and you know Andy Murray has been more than the recipient uh, after Fed plays Delpo, winning an Olympic gold, uh, winning a major as well, and so uh, not a great matchup for Roger, especially when he's not 100%, taking nothing away from Juan Martín Del Potro, but uh, Roger Federer really lost the U.S. Open, in my opinion, uh, in the semifinal in Canada where he really didn't look all that great and was far from 100% against Alexander Zverev. Again, didn't get the momentum he needed that he wanted. He did correct course a little bit uh, midway through the U.S. Open, but when it came to a hard hitter like Delpo, it wasn't going to happen. And uh, even if he had made his way through that match, despite the way he's competed against Nadal this year, I don't know if that necessarily would have uh, gone Roger's favor. Uh, very disappointing, the fact that his body failed him here. Yeah, I mean, we, we say it's disappointing on one hand. On the other hand, he just turned, was it 36 or 37 yes. years old? And he's still playing 
tennis at a high level. Um, so, you know, we, we say we're disappointed, but at the same time, we're just extremely thankful for the opportunity to still be watching Roger Federer compete at this level. Um, Pete, you, you came across a, a great stat. I found this one really interesting. Last year, Gael Monfils wins 15 sets in a row, comes into the U.S. Open semifinals uh, really on quite a run, and then he gets demolished by Novak Djokovic in the semifinal. That was a very mm-hmm. unique semifinal. Pablo Carreño Busta was able to take it one step farther than Monfils. He won 16 sets in a row, uh, but still wasn't able to get through that semifinal with Kevin Anderson. But uh, let's talk about just what a what a run that was for Pablo Carreño Busta, someone that most people might consider a clay court specialist, now having uh, extremely high levels of success at the U.S. Open. Phenomenal. I mean, a career achievement for him to get as far as he did. And, yes, you mentioned uh, Monfils having a nice run before Djokovic absolutely derailed him. But Corino Busta really brought it, even competed extremely well against Anderson in that semi Jared won the first set, lost the second set 5-7. So he was right there in there with a shot before, uh, again, Anderson took control of that match. But, um, you know, didn't really play too many name opponents, if you will, although he did take out Denis Shapovalov in the fourth round in straight sets, uh, three tiebreakers there. Uh, Shapovalov, again, uh, was following that on Twitter, uh, even in the going into his fourth-round match, Jared, someone who – really wasn't even on anybody's radar six weeks prior. At that point, I, I believe I saw that he was the fourth favorite in the betting realm with uh, the U.S. Open, something I find hard to fathom. And obviously, Corina Busta, the veteran, snuffed that out right away. But uh, just to show you, Denis Shapovalov, who we'll talk about a little bit more in the show, credit to Corina Busta, not only beating him, taking him out in straight sets, and then Schwartzman, uh, another player, who I saw a little bit in Cincy, who's who's had a great summer as well. Crano Busta takes him out in straight sets. So a, a very nice tournament for Pablo Crano Busta, something he'll always remember. Uh, a semifinalist at a major. Wonderful run for him. Pete, every once in a while on this show, we have disagreements, you and I. And I remember one of those disagreements we had happened a little bit over a year ago after Cincinnati last yeah. year. And it was about who was going to be better between Alexander Zverev and Borna Chorich. And I yep. leaned toward Chorich, and you, you talked about a conversation you'd had with Robbie Koenig where uh, he convinced you basically that Alexander Zverev was going to be the better one. And for the last year, Alexander Zverev has been the better player. Now, I've had to concede that you were right. But on at the U.S. Open this year, the scales tipped back in my direction because – Borna Chorich took out Alexander Zverev in four sets. A, a big win for Chorich, uh, but a little bit of a disappointment for Alexander Zverev, who's had great success at the Masters, wasn't able to translate that into success at the Major. Yeah, absolutely right. That was a, a heck of a match uh, that, that year, Jared. Uh, Zverev, Alexander Zverev came through qualifying. Uh, First-round match on grandstand, uh, one that I watched every point of. Alexander Zverev at that point had match points and and threw him away. Uh, Again, we've seen him melt down a little bit on court. George, two years ago, and since he stayed the course, and I did point blank ask Rob Koenig the next day who called that match, uh, which I thought I was completely on the fence. Uh, You know, Rob, you know, who do you like and who's going to have the better career? 
without blinking an eye, uh, Rob Koenig, Alexander Zverev. He's just got the better tools, the better makeup, the better game. And I, you know, I, I was surprised at how quickly that was answered. Uh, the the year after last year, Jared, uh, Borna Chorich takes out Nick Kyrgios, saves a match point. Next round, takes out Rafael Nadal, just steamrolls him. I think he lost only four games in that match and then uh, had to retire in the first set against eventual Cincinnati champion Marin Cilic. So Borna Chorich has the tools. He's got what it takes. Uh, when we look at these guys side by side, obviously Zverev with the two Masters 1000 titles this year. Uh, George remains a little bit of a mystery, what, what's going on with him, but uh, you did mention he did turn the tables. I, I was very surprised by this result. Not very. Uh, surprised, I should say. George, uh, the head-to-head against Zverev, he does have the edge there. Perhaps it might be a little bit of a bad matchup with, for Zverev, but given what Alexander Zverev has been able to accomplish in 2017, especially on the hard courts, whom he's beaten, uh, how he's gone about it. Um, yeah, big win for Chorich. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to back that up. But, uh, uh, yeah, I look forward to uh, continuing to watch these guys head-to-head, even though Zverev has uh, got a couple of laps on him at this point. Yeah, and uh, we'll keep talking about me being vindicated, since that's my favorite topic. Um, Andre Rublev, he was someone that I listed inside – my top five on my list of top 20, under 20, yep. the top 20 teenagers in tennis. I listed Rublev inside my top five multiple times and got a lot of people saying, you're way too high on Rublev. He was a good junior player. Bill never translates to success uh, against the top players in the pro game. Um, I, I think I was right because Andre Rublev, the first of anyone in the next gen to reach a major quarterfinal, uh, he did that at the U.S. Open, a huge run for him, Pete. No, completely. And, uh, you know, you and I have had this talk. I, I identified Kachanov, who had some nice wins a couple of years ago in St. Petersburg, taking out Tipsarevich, who was on a little bit of a roller coaster there. Uh, but, again, the scoreline really came out and, and, and uh, impressed me there. You and I, Jared, you, you point blank me there saying, okay, whom do, you, whom do you like better at this point in time? I think about six weeks ago, Kachanov or Rublev. And I went with Kachanov. Uh, since that time, I did see both players play in Cincinnati. Uh, Rublev uh, just got absolutely schooled by Ernest Gulbis in the first round of qualifying. Uh, sort of an unfair match, if you will, for Rublev, but he was destroyed. Gulbis played very well. Uh, Rublev looked like he wanted to smash his bracket about three different times. I wasn't put off by that, Jared. I, I, I liked the fact that he was disgusted with himself, that he couldn't figure it out against Golbis, who was just crushing the ball. There was no speed gun on court 10 on that match, but I would say Golbis was probably 132-133 first serves. It was really bringing it second serves, heavy forehands, and again, Rublev only won five games there. Catching off, I must say, uh, I saw him play a couple of times, and um, I was a little disappointed. He got some wins in Cincinnati, but I was a little disappointed in uh, the lack of seasoning, the lack of flavor in his game. It was sort of very, very vanilla, if you will. I was expecting a bigger game from Kachanoff, and I saw glimpses of that. But, um, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll give the nod to you on this one. Andre Rublev, quarterfinalist at the U.S. Open, and again, bears mention, despite the fact of what Alexander Zverev and others have done this year and the last year or so, 
Andre Rublev, the first of the next gen, Jared, reaching a major quarterfinal. Nice run for him. Obviously, he got outclassed by Nadal, but uh, for him to be able to reach that, uh, I'm shocked. And I'll just I'll just share one other point with you. Mert Ertunga, who I have a great deal of respect for uh, in the tennis world and, and his contributions on Twitter and what he writes for the Turkish tennis world, um, he and I were chatting some direct messages back and forth, and I mentioned the fact that I saw Rublev crash and burn against Gulbis, and he actually asked me, you know, what I saw out of that match, what I took out of that match, and again, I saw, <coughs> excuse me, each and every point, and he was shocked at what I had to write because he said, you know, I've, I've watched him all summer, I've watched him on clay, and that match against Gulbis was really an outlier. That didn't make any sense to me compared to what he did prior to going into Cincinnati and what he did after Cincinnati at the U.S. Open. So what just did not go well for him against Ernest Gulbis and Cincy? And, Jared, in my, in my opinion, it was the heavy, heavy game of Gulbis, a veteran, uh, again, former Soviet Union player, if you will, if that factors in. I don't know. But uh, Rublev, uh, a younger guy, if you will, had absolutely no answers against Ernest Gulbis. But, again, <coughs> excuse me, Murder Tunga couldn't make heads or tails of that match given Rublev's form on clay, on grass, on hard court, and obviously at the U.S. Open. So credit Gulbis, who, uh, who had all the answers against Rublev. Yeah, uh, a great match for, for Goldbus in that one, taking out Rublev. Um, I think w- before Rublev played against Nadal, he was making these kinds of comments about the chance to play against his hero on Arthur yep. Ashe and all these things. And these are, these are the telltale signs that a blowout is coming. I think everyone saw it coming. As soon as Rublev started making these comments about how much he admires Nadal, how excited he was about the opportunity to share a court with him, uh, it, it was over at that point. So a nice run <laughs> to the quarterfinals for him. Hopefully next time when he reaches that point, there will be uh, a different mentality for him, and, and he'll be ready to take down some of these top players because I think it's definitely w- within him to beat Nadal at this point in his career. Um, you know, it would still take a magnificent effort, but it's far from impossible unless he goes into it with that kind of an attitude. But uh, we'll, we'll move on now to talk about Dominic team team had arguably one of the most disappointing U.S. Opens, given the fact that he had match points against Juan Martin Del Potro, wasn't able to hold on. Del Potro goes on to beat Federer, but couldn't hold on uh, long enough to beat Rafael Nadal. How much would this tournament have looked different if Dominic team had taken advantage of those match points? I, I think it could have had a significant difference there. Uh, obviously, Federer not playing Del Potro, playing team, even, you know, had team even won easily in straight sets. He only dropped three games in the first two sets against Delpo, Jared. Different different deal for Fed against Dominic team. No disrespect to team, but it's just a different ingredient altogether. Uh, Fed, you know, had won uh, six sets in a row, uh, greater than that. The last two matches won those in straights. Uh, probably would have taken care of team in three or four going in against Rafa, even though maybe not 100%, but, uh, you know, the the mental aspect, he he, um, he had beaten Rafa all three times 
they played this year. Rafa had to be wondering what's going on. Uh, Rafa himself didn't look all that great in the U.S. Open earlier this year. So, yeah, uh, the fact that Dominic team did not close out Del Potro, I think, had a significant impact on the U.S. Open. Uh, Jared <coughs> team, I saw him play quite a bit in Cincinnati. Uh, absolutely shocked at uh, David Ferrer, who probably played the match um, of his last three years in Cincinnati in beating Team 3-3. Three and three. Uh, Still, the fact that Team had no answers against an aging veteran, a little bit of a surprise. Team stated he did not like the conditions in Cincy that really impacted him. He did correct course a little bit in New York, but um, <clears throat> going back to your question, I agree. If Dominic Team takes out Del Potro, if Del Potro retires, we could very well probably have had a different U.S. Open champion this year. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, looking now at the bottom half of the draw, this was the most wide-open half of a draw that we've seen in a major um, in my memory, uh, that's for sure. Um, as Really, as soon as Murray dropped out, it was, okay, who's coming through the bottom? It's now wide open. Then Chilich loses. Uh Another few top seeds drop out, and all of a sudden you're, you're looking at the list of guys that are left, guys like Pablo Carreño Busta, Denis Shapovalov, Sam Query, and Kevin Anderson, who eventually didn't make it through. But Sam Query, I thought this was an interesting one. He reached the quarterfinals um, last year at Wimbledon. He takes out Novak Djokovic, the hottest player in tennis, hotter than any tennis player has ever been. I mean, what going into that Wimbledon, the things Djokovic had achieved in the last 12 months, Right. Uh, that was the greatest 12-month period in tennis history, in my opinion, hands down. And mm-hmm. Sam Curry beats him. Sam Curry comes back to the to Wimbledon this year and reaches the semifinal. Now here he is, one match away from reaching a second consecutive semifinal here in his home slam, a wide-open draw, and this time he wasn't able to come through. Big missed opportunity for him, right? Com- completely agree, and he, he downplayed it, uh, saying he was happy with the result. But uh, really, Sam, I mean, he demolished Misha Zverev 2-2-1, two, two, and one, Jared, before facing Anderson. He was a set apiece with him. Uh, you know, first two sets going to breakers. Uh, Anderson won the third 6-3 before winning, uh, again, winning the fourth 9-7 in the tiebreak. Had Sam Curry won this, he would have played Karina Busta, who, again, 15 sets in a row, but come on. I mean, uh, Sam Query, I, I, I think, would have, even though I, I struggled with this, probably would have been able to elevate his game there. I think the home-cooking crowd would have gotten him through. And, wow, um, he can downplay it all he wants, but um, I have to think Sam Query is absolutely kicking himself with, with not getting it done. You mentioned, Jared, uh, the understatement of the year, the bottom half of the U.S. Open draw with with Murray vacating, abdicating, if you will, uh, that number two seed, number one seed, uh, number two seed there. Uh, all of a sudden, it was thrown. Uh, you know, it, it was 52 card pickup there. And for Sam Query, an American, not to be able to parlay that, uh, taking nothing away from Kevin Anderson, but Query at that point in time, Jared was playing some very good ball. Again, given the fact uh, that he had destroyed. Misha Zverev coming into his match with uh, with uh, Kevin Anderson. Unfortunate for him that he did not get the job done there. Yeah, and uh, talk about another North American, Denis Shapovalov. We talked about him a little bit on the show. 
already. Some people might have been surprised by the success he had at the U.S. Open. I know you weren't. I wasn't. Uh, we've been aware of Shapoval for a while. We know the promise that this guy has. Uh, but really, it was still a very special run for him to, as a qualifier, reach the second week of a major, uh, ended up losing to Pablo Carreño Busta in straight sets, but still a, a very impressive run for Shapovalov, kind of showing the world uh, what kind of potential he has and um, becoming more well-known to tennis fans as a result. Yeah, I have to say I'm, I'm disappointed the USTA did not give him a wild card. I, I almost go back to I, I hit the re, rewind button, Jared, when this whole Sharapova thing was going on with, uh, you know, was she going to have to play qualies at Roland Garros or would she get a wild card? And it's almost like the majors right now, you know, are sort of beating their chest saying, oh, we've, we've got one or two on these players. Um, we're going to all of a sudden shift the spotlight on the qualifying draw because we've got one or two players that all of a sudden the whole tennis world wants to know what's going on. And this ho-hum qualifying draw that only the aficionados pay attention to, uh, oh, yeah, Sharapova is going to have to play Wimbledon qualifying. Oh, yeah, Shepovalov, uh, we know him. He got to the semis of the, the Rogers Cup in Canada. Um, we're going to force him to play qualifying. Well, he blitzed through that draw and whatnot, and it's almost unfortunate, if you will, uh, given the way things line up with uh, the calendar points and whatnot, the fact that he had to play. When you look at some of the people who did get qualifying, uh, in wild cards, if you will, in the main draw, four nations host majors, Jared, and it's extremely top-heavy, and that's an understatement with who gets those wild cards. Sure, we've got the reciprocal thing with uh, Roland Garros and the Australian Open, but that's just a one-for-one. Denis Shapovalov more than deserved a a wild card in the main draw. He didn't pout about it. He just took care of business, and he parlayed that, and all credit to him, but I really have to scratch my head, uh, you know, with the fact that, you know, seven of eight or six of seven of these slots go to Americans that, uh, you know, you, you look at the results, not only of, uh, the American wild cards, if you will, but also the Brits at Wimbledon, the French at Roland Garros, the Australians, there's just some absolute mismatch slaughters in the first round. And I'd like to see this balanced out a little bit more. Sure. The, the host nation has the, the re, the right to issue who they want uh, to get those, but, I, I think it needs to be a little bit more balanced. This is Exhibit A, Triple A, if you will. Yeah, no, lots of good points there, Pete. Um, I will say for the U.S. Open, this is the one event in all of tennis where if you are going to pay attention to the qualifying draw, the U.S. Open's where you're going to do it. Uh, they yep. actually live stream all of their qualifying matches, um, whereas Wimbledon doesn't even let people watch. They're like secret events in qualifying. U.S. Open streams them so everyone can see it. On top of that, you have a lot of the top college players going on there. Um, really big names get into the qualifying draw at the U.S. Open, where it's, it's not so much about who has the right ranking where it, as it is, um, you know, like I said, top college players, guys like Denis Shapovalov in there in qualifying. So it is really a spectacular event to qualify at the U.S. Open. But I uh, totally agree with you that it, it would be so nice to see Shapovalov directly in there and also he beat three guys in in qualifying those three guys probably would have had a much better shot at qualifying if they didn't have to go through Denis Shapovalov but really uh, an incredible effort by the young Canadian 
Anyways, we'll move on to uh, a matchup of literally a David versus Goliath matchup. Um, Marin Cilic taking on Diego Schwartzman. Schwartzman comes through with the win. Uh, former champion Marin Cilic has the wide open draw and can't take advantage of it. Uh, has to be a huge disappointment for Marin Cilic. Is that how you see it? Uh, big time. I, I don't get it at all. Let's let's not forget. Chilich did not play Canada nor Cincinnati. Jared, uh, Christopher Johnson, a, a Canadian photographer that I've seen in Cincinnati the last three years, uh, spent some time in Croatia earlier, was actually playing on the courts where Chilich trains and uh, gave me the heads up and tip that he would not be playing Cincy. Uh, that has to factor into some of this, obviously, almost like a fetter, not necessarily having the momentum he wants going into the U.S. Open, although he did play into the finals in Canada. Chilich didn't play anything on hard courts coming in. Uh, that has to have impacted him. That said, Schwartzman, I, I, I saw a little bit of him in Cincy. I was impressed with how he was hitting the ball and how he was advancing at the same point in time. Jared, we're talking about a former U.S. Open champion who won Cincinnati last year. Uh, you know, Chilich can, can absolutely bring it. I can't even begin to imagine how this result happening at Schwartzman, taking nothing away from Diego Schwartzman, who's played some pretty good ball this summer, but th- this should not have happened in the in the world of Marin Cilic at all. Yeah, absolutely. So we've covered a lot in the top half of the draw, bottom half of the draw. Anything else you'd like to hit on, Pete, from the U.S. Open? Well, I, I'd like to give some credit to uh, Delgopoloff, who, uh, again, beat Kevin Anderson in straight sets in Cincinnati. This is a guy who... A couple of years ago, Jared came through qualifying, and since he got all the way to the semis, uh, gave Djokovic a huge scare in the semifinals uh, before bowing out. Uh, came through qualifying again, uh, played Opelka. Uh, got, you know, his, his, his reward for getting through since he qualifying is lining up against Kevin Anderson in round one. He mows him down in straight sets uh, despite 24 aces against him. And Delgopoloff had a very nice run in Cincinnati. Nice run as well in, in, at the U.S. Open. I forgot the Italian player he played, Jared. Uh, won the first two sets in 46 minutes. Just an absolute demolishment uh, of, of whom he played before playing Nadal. And, you know, you have to wonder, okay, can you duplicate this in, in back-to-back matches at the U.S. Open? Uh, you, you've played your heart out winning easily in straight sets got to feel pretty good about yourself and then you play Nadal and, and just go out and lay an egg and uh, I credit Rafa for that but also I, I, I want to give a cap tip if you will to Dagopolov who uh, you know hadn't been past the second round of the US Open I think five years Jared and had himself a nice run so uh, uh, he's one of my favorite players to watch just that, that effortless service motion that I saw again saw him close out Anderson and Cincy and, again, a, a very nice run for Alexander Gavlov at the U.S. Open. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, lots of great things in the U.S. Open. One of the u- most unique U.S. Opens we've had in a while. Um, yep. But a little bit of change is good. I think there there were some people in tennis who were a little bit tired of the big four reaching the semifinals of every single tournament. And it kind of felt like the tournament didn't start until the semifinals when uh, – Andy Murray and Rafael Nadal were going to play on one half, Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer on the other half. We've had so many Grand Slams like that 
that in this tournament we had no Stan Wawrinka, no Novak Djokovic, no Andy Murray, and uh, an injured Roger Federer, um, Juan Martin Del Potro that's still on the comeback, and Marin Cilic out early, and all of a sudden things opened wide open, and it's it's a whole new era of tennis at this point. So it, it was a different feeling at the U.S. Open. It was kind of an exciting one. We maybe got a glimpse into the future, uh, but in the end it was still a member of the big four, Rafael Nadal taking home the hardware um, says a lot about what this generation of players is doing that. Cause I remember probably 2011 ESPN throwing up a graphic of here, here are the next best great players. And they mentioned four, it was Grigor Dimitrov, Milos Raonic, Bernard Tomic and Ryan Harrison. Between those four players, they have mm. one grand slam final zero titles. Um, still a long way to go for those four guys and really their whole generation. It looks like they could get skipped over entirely as guys like Nick Kyrgios, Dominic Thiem, um, Denis Shapovalov, Francis Tiafo, and Alexander Zverev. These guys are really pushing the envelope and uh, Bernard Tomic's generation could get totally just skipped over. Um, at, at this point, I think it'd be more surprising that one of them wins a Grand Slam title then that third generation just gets completely skipped, which is really unheard of in tennis and sports in general for a generation to produce no champions. Great call. Um, we've been waiting. We've been watching. We've been trying to figure out how, if at all, someone can pull one off. Um, you know, it's almost like everything has to line up properly, almost like the way it did for Nadal this time around, uh, although – Obviously, he knows his way around the block a few times, but um, wasn't to be for this generation. Probably won't be, Jared. Uh, unfortunate, but um, that's how strong the Big Four is, and or Big Five, if you will. You know, I, I, I give a lot of credit to. Uh, I think it was <coughs> Rafa making mention of Roger Novak and himself, uh, you know, and whatnot didn't mention Andy Murray in the conversation, and, and I get that. Uh, you know, Andy has three majors. Stan has three majors. Sure, Andy has significantly more Masters 1000s, but at the end of the day, it's majors that count. And so if we're going to talk about big four, it's got to be either big three or big five. I, I, I'm not comfortable with the big four. Stan Varenka deserves uh, attention in there as well, and I think Rafa uh, acknowledged that with uh, – you know, the fact that the majors count is between three guys. I get that. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. And uh, there is really a clear – Djokovic is kind of seen as the third because he is behind Nadal and Federer in terms of Grand Slam tiles. The gap between Djokovic and Murray for Grand Slam tiles is huge. The gap between yeah. Djokovic and Murray for weeks at number one is huge. Uh, Murray just this last year got the number one ranking for the first time in his career and immediately after receiving it just took a nosedive. Um, yep. You know, he's, he's in danger of not qualifying. Well, he, he's, I, I believe he's announced he's out for the year. Uh, but even mm-hmm. before that, he was in danger of not even qualifying for the year end final. So for, you know, how much 12 months has changed for Andy Murray, what really changed was he got the number one ranking, didn't know what to do with it. Whereas Nadal, Djokovic and Federer all seasoned veterans in terms of handling that number one ranking. So Nadal has it for now, 
and uh, it looks like he's going to be able to hold on to it for a while. No one's really challenging him at this point, except Federer, who right now he's skipping the entire clay season. And, uh, Pete, I know that's one of the things you want to talk about was the clay season. We're seeing some changes there uh, as Rome and Madrid are both being changed into 96-player draws. I don't know a lot about this. Um, it sounds like they're copying the format of Indian Wells in Miami. Pete, do you know, does this mean – that Madrid and Rome will be two weeks each in the same way that Ending Wells and Miami are? Or what what exactly is the plan with those tournaments? Yeah, this was just announced yesterday, Jared, and not only the ATP, but obviously since they're joint events, the WTA as well. And, you know, we, we take a look at it. The Australian Open ends in um, early February and late January, early February. <clears throat> We have the, the the Latin America clay court swing, if you will, in in February, and then obviously the month of March is uh, is Indian Wells in Miami. A uh, couple of ninety six draws, if you will. The whole whole thing is like a U.S. Open draw, one twenty eight, if you will. But the top thirty two, if you will, get by. So uh, ninety six players are in action uh, right out of the gate, and so um, it was announced yesterday, Jared, uh, two clay court. Uh, obviously not Monte Carlo, but Rome and Madrid are going to mirror the 96 format, which means 32 first-round buys. This is going to be a 10-slash-11-day event now, uh, probably even longer now with qualifying. So uh, it's going to mirror Indy Wells and Miami. And again, I mentioned the fact that the Australian Open ended in early February, and these uh, Indy Wells-Miami took place in the month of March. That's that's sort of a good exhale, if you will. Uh, we're between majors by by a bunch. Uh, you know, the Australian Open ends early February. We don't have the next major until Roland Garros, which is in May. Now we're taking a look at something that we've got uh, some extra time built in. Uh, all of a sudden, it, it these are larger tournaments, and I'm. I'm I'm just wondering out loud if these aren't being shoehorned in, if you will. It's not bad enough that there's not one of these, Jared. Two of them. Uh, we're going to have Monte Carlo in the middle of April, and then obviously uh, Rome is going to happen early part of May, Madrid mid to late May, and all of a sudden, wow, I'm wondering how many guys and girls' tongues are going to be in the ground after uh, a, a grueling event like this, I'm 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 almost surprised they didn't go all out and say, you know, we're going to make the the final best of five just just so we can be like a major as well. I'm glad they didn't do that, but um, a 96 draw for any Wells in Miami where it falls in the calendar is fine. I I'm I've I've got a lot of issues and concerns with what Rome and Madrid are going uh, to do in 2019. Um, and I don't like it. Yeah, no, uh, lots of good points there. And do you know, will this take effect uh, for the 2018 season, or will they wait until 2019 for when this starts? No, no 19. Uh, they issued uh, the uh, body of tennis issued the 2019 calendars, and this took they, this takes effect in 19, not not uh, 18. So. 2018, the last year of 56 draws for the men and women in Madrid. We're going to go plus 40, if you will, for both of these in 19. And um, I, I'm, you know, we we talked about contracting the tennis season, but uh, we've just added, uh, you know, 
uh, a half week plus uh, before the second major of the year, and I'm just wondering how everybody's energy is going to be going forward from here on out. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really curious to look at the schedule and the details of it and how it affects all the tournaments around it, the tournament in Barcelona, uh, the yep. tournament in Nice. And there there used to be that, that one week where you have three tournaments going on once. It used to be um, there was a tournament in Portugal, one in Belgrade, yep. and um, I believe the other one was in Munich. And that week has, for the last couple of years, just been on a carousel changing where those tournaments are at and uh, the ATP's had a hard time finding stability in that week. Um, so I'm guessing that week probably just got decimated uh, by this recent change. But, um, you know, one of my big takeaways from this is that this is going to be part of what the legacy of the Big Four era is going to be. Um, I remember in 2012, uh, Paris was going to be played at the same time or exactly one week before the year-end finals. And all the big players basically said, okay, we won't try in Paris, Bercy, then. <laughs> and they didn't. Next year, we see the schedule changed. Madrid tries one year to play play on on blue clay. Uh, all the top players say they don't like it. Next thing you know, the ITF says blue, K, blue, blue clay is banned. And uh, we don't see it anymore. Um, you know, these guys haven't played in Davis Cup for the last few years. All of a sudden, we're seeing all these changes, a ton of changes being made to Davis Cup just to get Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic, and Roger Federer, Andy Murray, and Sam Wawrinka as well to play in Davis Cup events. And I kind of see this change as really the next one. Roger Federer skips the whole clay season, says it doesn't, it's not really convenient for him to play in it. They said, okay, well, we'll will Taylor make it for, for Federer? And, and uh, so I'll be really curious to see in 2019 if Federer's still around. Uh, will he decide to play in these tournaments or not? Will Nadal play in these tournaments? Djokovic, um, you know, those two guys will be up in age as well. And so we're seeing a lot of changes in the schedule. I think a big part of it is these four players have massive influence because they're the four players that sell up tickets. Um, fans will show up to watch these guys play, and tournaments are doing – anything in their power to get these guys to show up. And uh, that's one of the reasons the 250s in general have just suffered for the last five to ten years um, because these guys have no reason to go play in the 250. And as a result, um, you know, the ATP only markets four players. So if one of those four players is not your tournament, who do you have to get people, to convince people to buy tickets to come out and watch your event? Um, And that's really one of the issues that tennis is facing right now and uh, the, the branding for next gen has been a solution to that. But in the meantime, tournaments are just fighting to try to get these four players to to enter their draw. I agree. And you know, Jared, you know, rewinding a little bit to August, uh, Nick Curios, David Goffin was a first round match in Cincinnati this year uh, with a 96 draw. And again, I've been to some of the early rounds at Indian Wells, and and. You know, they're yawners, they're sleepers, they're, they're really, the matchups are, are not good. You, you kind of want to fast forward until the weekend, if you will, and until we get to the second or even the third round, until we get some pretty good matches. We're going to have some pretty horrible matchups uh, in the first round of a 96 draw. We do see that at Inouye's Miami. Even a lot of the second round matchups are, are not great at all. 
Uh, the tournament doesn't really take form until the third round, and we got some good matchups there. There might be one or two in the first or second round, but not nearly enough. And again, I I circle Kyriosko fan right out of the gate in Cincinnati. Uh, that's not going to be happening in Rome nor Madrid, and it doesn't happen in Wells in Miami. It only happens in places like Cincinnati and Toronto, and and now I guess uh, you know Monte Carlo and possibly Shanghai and and, and Bercy, but um, I I don't like any part of this. So uh, I'm going to be watching 2018 a little bit more carefully because it's the last bastion as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, no, it's a great point. I'm really curious, you know, what's this going to do for a guy like, say, Albert Ramos, someone that's a, a great clay court player, doesn't play yep. well on any other surface, so he has to get all his ranking points from hardcore events, and usually he's going to get it at the 250s. There's no way he's going to be getting a first-round buy at this right. event unless he just has an incredible 2018. So he, he's probably not getting a first-round buy. He's just fighting to get by at this massive tournament, whereas before he was getting guaranteed you know, pretty much a certain amount of prize money and ranking points by going to some of these 250 events that are going to be decimated by this change. So I'm really curious, is, is this something Albert Ramos is excited about? Or is this something that really worries him about, you know, is he going to be able to continue to make it out on the world tour level with these tournaments not existing anymore and, and him now having to fight his way just to get into the, the rounds of a 1,000 where you're actually playing for serious amounts of money and ranking points? Because uh, really you're looking now at you, got, you have to get three wins before you're talking about getting any significant amount of ranking points. Co- completely agree. I, um, I think there's some excitement, if you will, with this announcement saying, okay, wow, change is good. This is interesting. Any Wells is great. Miami's great. But uh, is it really? And um, I'm going to be watching this very closely or, or not, Jared, because I'm, I'm not a fan of it. And like I said, 2018, the last bastion for uh, tennis as we know it, if you will. And uh, as you mentioned, everybody's going to be uh, – Two years older now, so Fed's going to be 38 at this point in time. Nadal, Joker, 33. Murray, 32. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know. I, the 96 draw for me, like I said, I've been to plenty of early rounds at Indian Wells, and they've been sleepers, they've been snoozers. It, very, very few good matches right out of the gate. We, we, we have to wait for the tournament to warm up. And, again, I, I mentioned the Kyriosko fan right out of the gate in Cincy, uh, as well as a few other matchups. I, I, I love the 64 draw, you know, the eight buys, 56. We get, we have blockbusters right out of the gate. We don't have to wait for the tournament to get three days old before we get them. Yeah, and, and on top of that, in those tournaments, you get players that are ranked 57, 58, playing each other in qualifying. Yep. Um, you know, the qualifying matches in those tournaments – are really good, um, you know, you'll kind of do a double take. Like, what, that guy was seeded a week ago at a 250, and mm-hmm. now he's playing in qualifying. Um, those guys that were in qualifying, now we're just basically calling that the first round, which is fine. That That is still good tennis, um, but it, I, I agree with you. You're waiting basically three days for things to start, and I think what happened is, you know, hands down, Indian Wells is the most successful of any of the Master Series events. And for sure, Rome and Madrid are looking at that saying, hey, you know, 
we could have success too. But I don't think it's the size of the draw that makes Indian Wells so successful. I think there's a lot more to it than that. And uh, just copying the size of the draw isn't going to instantly make uh, Madrid and Rome into huge successes. And, and I'd say Rome on its own is already a very successful tournament. Mm-hmm. Madrid has mm-hmm. its issues. Um, but Rome, Rome wasn't in need of a massive change to get itself on the right. map as far as the big tournaments in tennis. It, it's already there in my opinion. Yeah, and, and two things, Jared, along those lines of what you just said. Uh, Ernest Gulbis, Mikhail Yuzhny was a second-round qualifying. The winner gets into the main draw of Cincinnati. The loser goes home. That's huge. Uh, also, uh, yeah, that, that, that is ginormous, if you will, with respect to uh, what just happens in Cincinnati. I mean, uh, also, I should make mention, the week before at the Masters 1000 in Canada, uh, we had Robin Hase, a semifinalist, Jared, who played Federer really tough in those semifinals, against quarterfinalist Adrian Manorino. We had a, a, a semifinalist of a Masters 1000 playing the quarterfinalist of Masters 1000 the week before in the very first round in Cincinnati on court number four, which is a very, very small court. Uh, Sloan Stevens played on court number four, Jared, against Makarova, a, a bona fide WTA match. That's where this match was played in Cincinnati. And we had two guys who were in excellent form, Robin Hase, who won the first set very easily against Adrian Manorino before Manorino turned the tables and won that in three. Uh, again, uh, the week before, a, a guy who was in the semis of a Masters 1000 playing a guy who was in the quarterfinals of the same Masters 1000 on court number four in round one in the Masters 1000 the very next week. That's what we are no longer going to see in Roman Madrid. Sad story. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is something I've written about before regarding prize money specifically, but I think the same applies here in that we have all these, we have nine 1000 tournaments. And basically what we're doing is we're creating different rules for each of the nine tournaments. And yep. uh, the same amount of prize money goes to making it to each round, um, but the format of the tournament is changing. So these tournaments are supposed to be equal, but now we're treating them as different. And so I was talking about giving different amounts of prize money at Bercy versus Cincinnati or Cincinnati versus Toronto versus Indian Wells, which, whichever the example may be. I was talking specifically about prize money, but I think the same uh, principle applies to the size of the draw. If we're going to say these nine tournaments are part of a series, they're all 1,000, they're all equal, then we need to see some sort of consistency. We can't see, we can't have this where um, some of them are 96, some of them 56, yep. um, different sizes, different amounts of prize money, um, thankfully, we've gotten rid of playing five sets in the 1,000. Yeah. Um, all of a sudden, you, you know, you're into the semifinals, and now semifinals or finals, and now it's a five-set tournament. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we kind of have a similar issue with the majors right now where, you know, the the clouds roll in, and all of a sudden it's an indoor tournament. Okay, it's a sunny day. Now it's an outdoor tournament. Well, mm-hmm. which is it? It's one tournament. Let's play it under the same rules and conditions. I get it with the majors. You have people paying lots of money for tickets and uh, having a rained-out day. There's nothing worse than that for anyone. Everyone loses when that happens. Um, So I I understand it with the roof, um, but 
let's try to get some consistency here in tennis. Just because it's a tour doesn't mean it needs to be a joke. Couldn't agree more. Um, you know, Wimbledon blows their horn. It's an outdoor tournament. Well, yeah, it is if the weather cooperates. And, and yeah, the, the, there's so much money at stake right now. I get it. You know, it took forever to get the roof on Ash. They better well use it. But you're, you're right. I mean, um, it, it's it wavers back and forth. I, I completely agree. It's the consistency just isn't there. It's, it, I guess we can chalk it up, Jared, to say it's all about money right now. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of television dollars at stake right now. And if there's no live action, I mean, I don't think people want to see uh, uh, Connors Crickstein from uh, from 91 again. And, and fortunately, we don't have to see that with the roof on ash where it, even if it is raining cats and dogs in New York, uh, we were able to have one match on live at one point in time, and uh, they can max that out. But I, I agree with you. Um, a lot of inconsistencies. It's just the way tennis rolls at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so we want to get into Davis Cup here tonight, or how are you feeling about that at this point, Pete? Yeah, your your call. We we can take a look at that. It, it's going to start in a couple of days, or we can uh, we can save that for the weekend. Yeah, no. Let's jump into a couple of those matchups. I know there are some fun ones. We can spend a couple minutes on that before we wrap up the show. Um, it's uh, always fun to talk about Davis Cup. I know you and I are both big fans of that, and for now, it's maintaining its format. So uh, we're going to enjoy that too while we can. Yep. No, good point. Um, Australia, Nick Kyrgios. Um, Again, someone who I was able to see all each and every one of his points in Cincinnati, Jared, uh, great guy. Uh, he is going to be paired with Kokonakis, who has been on the shelf uh, here and off and on. Uh, going to Belgium to take on Gofan and probably Steve Darcy in singles. Uh, one regret, uh, the Nikirios presser was cut off a little bit uh, in the after he played the final. I did want to ask him about uh, how... Leighton Hewitt has uh, helped him out in uh, as a player, and he did answer that in the last week or so. But um, always intriguing to see Nick Kyrgios. Uh, he's not always had the greatest uh, representation for Australia in Davis Cup, nor has Kokonakis at that point in time. But this is what the this is what the Aussie team is going with against David Goffin, who unfortunately is less than 100. Uh, percent We I did see the Kyrgios Goffin matchup in Cincy. Uh, both guys were pretty banged up. Uh, we'll, we'll see how that's drawn to see who leads off with whom. But uh, very intriguing. The Aussies are going to Belgium to play Goffin and Darcy. Yeah, it should be a fun one. Obviously, the favorite here is. Uh, the Australians, a great partnership there between Kokonakis and Kyrgios going back uh, to their junior days. Uh, these two guys, when they get together, they make each other fun to watch. It's kind of like Elvis Andrews and Adrian Beltre in baseball. Uh, the two are fun to watch together. Um, Kokonakis and Kyrgios as a pair are great. Um, I hope at some point, you know, Kyrgios says he doesn't want to be playing tennis once he's 27 or 28 or whatever. Okay, at that point, at least please show up at the majors and play doubles with Kokonakis. Um, I will buy a ticket to that. That will be a lot of fun. But uh, this Davis Cup tie should be a good one. Um, like I said, advance to the Australians. But uh, anytime you see stars like uh, Darcy going up against guys like Kokonakis, uh, it's something you got to stop and watch. So uh, it'll be a fun one. I'll be t- tuning into it. <laughs> 
Yep, and we've also got Serbia, Sands, Novak, Djokovic, Tipsarevic not playing as well. Going to France, Jared, uh, Songa is there, Puy is there. Gasquet, interesting, playing a challenger of all things this week uh, rather than Davis Cup. But um, obviously, Hebert and Mehu, who I had a chance to see, and since he playing doubles as well. Very depleted Serbian squad going to France. Uh, I think this one is tilted in the favor of French, but um, you never know. Uh, and you, you look at it, and the uh, head-to-head is 5-4 in favor of Serbia, which is fascinating if you look at it. But uh, I think at this point in time, it's all going to be French at this point. Yeah, absolutely. I think French... Uh the French team on any given year is capable of winning the Davis cup. Um, it really just depends on matchups, who they play early in the tournament. Um, but yeah, this one, uh, I don't see how Serbia could even really challenge them without Novak Djokovic. They're already in big trouble, uh, let alone not having, uh, Tipsarovic as well. So big issues for the Serbs in this one. I, I see, uh, France game through three nothing. Are you aware of uh, anything with respect to Tipsarevic? Why he's not playing? Obviously, we know why Novak Djokovic isn't playing. But uh, any of the of the other Serb names that uh, are not showing up for this one? Do you have any insight on that? Yeah, um, Turitsky's not playing this one either, is he? No, no. Yeah, so, very strange. You know, a couple guys missing besides just Djokovic. I do wonder if maybe it's a case where they know without Djokovic, they don't have a chance against a team of the caliber of France. And uh, so Tipsarovic and Tritsky just weren't interested. And uh, for a guy like maybe Lalievich, I'm guessing Krajinovic will be one of the other ones. Uh, for them, it's it's a good opportunity to get some experience in uh, this kind of an atmosphere. And so... Uh, you know, someone's going to step up for the Serbs one way or another. Um, but really, once uh, we knew that Novak Djokovic wasn't playing in this, once he announced his season was over, um, it, it was kind of a, a done deal. We we knew uh, France was going through no matter what. So uh, basically, it doesn't matter who the Serbians throw out there. Yeah, and, and I like what you said there, Jared. I'm sure, you know, anytime we've turned into an ESPN telecast in the last – 15, 17 years we've heard about uh, the McEnroe's talking about how important it is for these young Americans to be hitting partners on Davis Cup squads and whatnot. But uh, you mentioned Kriyanovic uh, probably will be pressing the singles here. And, uh, boy, the experience one gets from playing Davis Cup, uh, again, Federer was quoted as, you know, the Wimbledon final is a cup of tea compared to playing Davis Cup. And uh, I think that's all anyone needs to know to understand how complicated, how challenging, how tough it is to play Davis Cup tennis compared to even a a major final, a Wimbledon final. For Fed to give that uh, lopsided analogy, uh, that speaks volumes, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Davis Cup is such a unique thing, and uh, particularly for someone like Federer who didn't play college tennis, um, I'd say even more so. And, uh, you know, for these guys, it's called the World Cup of Soccer. It really can't hold up a candle to the World Cup, um, but it is similar in that sense where these are a lot of guys who grew up being soccer fans and never got that experience of playing in front of a big soccer stadium, playing in front of big tennis stadiums. 
But soccer stadiums and tennis stadiums are so different. And Davis Cup, the difference isn't quite so big. It, it does feel a little bit more like a soccer atmosphere, um, especially when the Argentines play and you get, you get the fans out yep. there cheering, ole, ole, ole. Uh, it, it feels like you're in a soccer stadium. It's a pretty cool thing. And uh, I think that's why uh, certain tennis players just love Davis Cup. Yeah, couldn't agree more, absolutely. And, uh, Jared, before we wrap up, anything else you'd like to add from either the U.S. Open, Davis Cup, or the new 96 draw coming in 19 in Rome and Madrid? Well, really, just getting a bird's-eye view of this uh, 2017 season now, after the U.S. Open, this is always the time of the year where we turn our attention towards who's going to reach the year-end finals. And now we, we already know there's not going to be a Novak Djokovic not going to be a Stan Wawrinka, not going to be an Andy Murray. Uh, we know for sure uh, Nadal and Federer will be there. I don't believe anyone else is qualified yet. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but things are really wide open for those other six spots and uh, who's eventually going to take home that trophy. Federer comes in as a favorite. Nadal has never won this tournament before. I'm sure he'd be very happy to add that to his trophy case. Um, that would be a big one for him. And so, uh, this is going to be a unique year in finals this year. Um, could see a new champion. I think, you know, Roger Federer is going to be the heavy favorite after that. Wide, wide open. Yeah, I, it, that brings me back to uh, a hypothetical I meant to ask you about 15, 20 minutes ago, Jared. Uh, let's peel back the clock two weeks ago, and uh, Rafa has not won the U.S. Open. If someone point-blanked Rafael Nadal, again, this is before he knew his path, if you will, to the U.S. Open final and eventual championship, but he didn't know that at this point in time. If you're Rafa and you had to pick one, you could win this U.S. Open or you can – or not, and you could win your one and only World Tour final this year. What would you pick? Uh, that That's a tough one. Obviously – the odometer with the majors compared to Roger, Rafa can downplay it all he wants. We know he's full of baloney when uh, it, he says it doesn't mean anything. It certainly means everything. But even Andy Murray got the job done last year, depleted field, if you will. But uh, this is something that uh, last year at this time, Jared, Nadal nor Murray had won the World Tour Finals. Uh, Murray finally got the job done. Uh, we 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 saw Novak completely out of gas, if you will. But uh, Rafa has still not won this. So uh, if you're Rafa and you have the opportunity either to win another major or the World Tour Finals for the very first time, what do you pick? Yeah, um, I, I think for sure he he's going to be gunning for uh, the year-end finals. But uh, I, I'd still take a major over that. Any time yeah. um, to say that having the total major title uh, doesn't matter is, is like you said, total baloney. I remember in baseball yep. when uh, Barry Bonds was chasing Hank Aaron, how big of a deal that was in terms of career home runs. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's a team sport. That's a team sport where an individual award was a big deal. Tennis is an individual sport, so don't tell me an individual award isn't a big deal. Okay, this is this is the very reason why you play. If you are one of the greats, the ultimate goal, the ultimate achievement is not the calendar year slam. It is to finish your career with the most total grand slams won. Uh, that's the reason why you play. That is the ultimate goal. Obviously, uh, things along the way, every single major you win is a big deal and a huge achievement in and of itself. 
Um, but the the best achievement, the greatest thing you can do is finish your career on top with the most total uh, majors won in Federer this year has made that uh, a near impossibility for any active player to reach. Um, so we'll see how long it'll be until someone beside Nadal is uh, catching up to Federer. We'll see if Nadal can do it. Um, you know, he's he's the last player in my mind for the next 20 years, really, that's going to have a shot at catching Roger Federer. You know, we'll see if maybe uh, Zverev and Shapovalov, someone like that, can start tallying up the majors once these guys are out of their way. Um, but really, you know, no one else is even close to Federer. So th- this is one of the things that can really get fans into tennis is if there's this big battle for uh who, who finishes their career with the most total grand slams. I think that's what we have now. But if Nadal can pull within one, uh, that would be huge for tennis and selling tickets. I don't know if he's going to be able to do it, though. I think Federer has really put this out of reach at this point. Yeah, just a sidebar. Um, again, we've seen revivals, obviously. Uh, Novak Djokovic charges from the gate, takes the first two next year. All of a sudden, is he... He's within range, obviously, uh, you know, 19, 16, 14, if you will. But uh, is, can he, in your mind, given where he is in the age category uh, and where Federer is and what he's doing, can he somehow find his way on top eventually? Yeah, so in the last few years, we've seen some incredible comebacks by Federer and Nadal. They've had injuries, and they've come back even better, and it's been incredible. Uh, Murray, you could even say that he's had a comeback. 2014 was a big down year for for him. 2016, he reached number one in the world for the first time in his career. Um, so we could see that from Djokovic. However, I think if we're expecting that from Djokovic, we are downplaying just how incredible it was what Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal have done in making their comeback. Um, it, it really is an incredible thing, and it's not something we should expect that anyone can be able to do. It, it would be equally incredible if Novak Djokovic does it. If he comes back next year and wins uh, his first two majors after coming back from injury, that would be a massive accomplishment, nothing short of it. I, I'm certainly not expecting it, um, but I, I'd love to be presently surprised. Um, but, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens with Djokovic. Obviously, if he can win uh, two majors next year, two or three, that would put him back into the race. Um, but at this point, I, I that, that seems like such a stretch to me. Um, the kinds of records he takes is maybe most career 1,000 titles. He had that for a while. I believe he's lost mm-hmm. that now. Um, so I'm sure he'll be uh, focused on getting that back um, along with trying to win some majors and get his ranking back up. No, good call. And, uh, Jared, before we wrap up, and uh, we'll do a, a Davis Cup uh, wrap early next week, but uh, anything else you'd like to add before we call it a night? Yeah, well, uh, I, I was going to say this earlier. I forgot to. Uh, Rafael Nadal now at this point is basically wrapped up the year at number one. So I'm going to be curious to see mm-hmm. uh, what he does as far as how much effort he puts into these tournaments from now until the year-end finals. Is he really going to try to save himself up? and uh, win this for the first time ever. Uh, it's going to be fun to see kind of the scheduling tactics that Nadal has because he also has the chance to just rack up a ton of ranking points and have a huge lead in the rankings before Vavrinka, Djokovic, and Murray come back because as soon as those three guys come back, they're going to be hunting Nadal like crazy. So now's Nadal's chance to build the lead or perhaps win his first 
uh, year end final. So he's kind of got a decision on his hands, and I'm, I'm kind of curious to see which way he goes with this. It's it's in, interesting as well. Uh, you know, Federer was within range there in Canada. Had he played in Cincy and had they met, uh, Roger could have overtaken him. Had they played at the U.S. Open in the semis and Roger won that match, he would have been number one. And now the way things ended up, Jared uh, Nadal with a 2,000-plus point differential between number one and number two. But at the same point in time, I like what you said. Uh, Djokovic, Murray, and company will be gunning for Nadal, uh, among others. And so, boy, you know, uh, it, it's just we flipped the script into 2018 and uh nothing's really changed in the last 10 12 years we we've got the same guys going after it competing well and uh it shouldn't be any other way absolutely great point yep and so on behalf of jared pine this is pete zebron saying good night we'll catch you next time on replay the point good night